0: This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell.
1: Glad you're with me. COP26 has ended. Private jets have left, along with 14,000 members of the media. I mean, the pre- prime minister's personal photographer, speechwriter are gone but with policies that Deutsche Bank senior analyst Eric Heyman says, in quotes, come in the form of higher taxes and fees on energy. Bank of America put a price tag, by the way, on an energy transition to net zero at as much as $5 a year for 30 years. Numbers so big as to be incomprehensible. Obviously, there's more discussion to come. But speaking of affordable, I hope you stay with me for the shocking stat, because you know what? Who needs tax increases when inflation's just like taking thousands of dollars out of your wallet? And don't, I mean, let me repeat, do not miss the quote of the week from Al Gore, who makes clear the next phase of government oversight and control, this time under the guise of climate change. Plus, I got Mike Levy, Ozzy Jurek on the latest government moves on real estate, Victor Dare makes sense of the week's market moves, and a Goofy Award, a final farewell to our elites in Glasgow. But first, arrogance and ignorance. Well, that's a heck of a combination, but both were on full display at COP26. And in the broader climate change debate in Canada, you know, the response I've received from stating, I guess it's yeah, I get it from nearly three years that there's no plan to obtain or produce the necessary raw materials to transition to renewable energy and electric vehicles makes it pretty clear that asking for specifics is not popular among many people who actually consider themselves climate activists at the risk of being too blunt. I think that's absurd. I mean, if we're serious about the transition, then shouldn't we be demanding specific details as to how how to accomplish it? You know, three weeks ago, I had a fascinating conversation with one of Canada's top energy analysts, Eric Nuttall, who stated that energy, the energy ignorance, so in evidence in the climate crusade, is going to lead to serious consequences. I mean, we're already seeing the beginning in the form of rising prices for coal or oil, diesel, natural gas in Europe, the UK and China. As a direct result of government policies. I mean, you know, you notice yourself, gasoline prices across North America are near record highs. And while there'll be the occasional price relief, a little dip, the upward trend in prices is going to resume primarily because global energy demand is going to continue to grow right through this deca- decade and into the next. But supply is not going to keep pace because investors and companies aren't putting their capital towards increased production. So, presto, higher prices. I mean, it's economics 101. More demand meets less supply, and prices rise. Now, keep in mind, while significantly higher prices for things like gasoline and home heating may cause you some distress, climate emergency advocates celebrate it because higher prices may reduce demand. Unfortunately, though, the majority of the world's population actually can't afford it. Even in Western countries, we're going to have tens of millions of low-income families and individuals We're going to have serious financial trouble with higher costs to heat their homes or drive their cars or take public transit. But on top of the increased prices for virtually every good, because transportation costs are increasing thanks to rising fuel costs. But the higher prices won't be a problem for the government officials or the business heavyweights or Hollywood stars, international NGOs and others among the over 30,000 who went to COP26. I mean, these are the creme de la creme of the elites the likes of Bill Gates, who left his 1.8 million euro a week yacht rental to take a private jet to Glasgow. Or they had a BlackRock, Jamie Dimon, the executives of Mabry corporations from Apple to JP Morgan to Goldman Sachs, who all sit in the board of the World Economic Forum and attended the Build Back Better COP26 in Glasgow. No, they are not going to have a problem, even if energy costs rise double digits. But another question on ending the use of fossil fuels, haven't heard it. You know, for all the talk of renewable energy and electric vehicles, have you, have you heard Prime Minister Trudeau, President Biden or climate czar John Kerry, Greta Thunberg, anybody in Extinction Rebellion, talk about how we're going to replace the thousands of goods made with petroleum? I mean, things like even hazmat suits recently, cement, lubricants, rubber, some medicines, fertilizers, Literally thousands of products that, as Eric Nuttall points out, represent 40% of all oil consumption. What's a realistic time frame for replacing all of those items? And speaking of fertilizer, I wonder how many people at COP26 or cheerleaders in the media or the educational establishment who cheerlead for policies that now we see guarantee higher oil prices. I wonder if they understand that petroleum is a significant component of fertilizer. And the recent spike in prices is going to hurt food supply. Yeah, I know. I've been talking about that for over, what, a year and a half as a byproduct of the pandemic restrictions and supply chain problems. But I'll tell you, the rise in oil prices, which are a direct result of government policy, are going to exacerbate the food problem. This week, executives of CF Industries, they're owners of the world's largest nitrogen-based fertilizer facility, declared that already a shortage of nitrogen fertilizer is getting so acute that farmers will be forced to scale back its use. That'll lower uh, corn yields, pushing up the price of food even further. The CEO of Yara International, that's Norway's biggest fertilizer uh, plant, he went further and stated that the energy crunch has made fertilizer too expensive to produce and went on to say, in quotes, I'm afraid we're going to have a food crisis. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but I do not see any indication that people pushing an end to the use of oil and other fossil fuels, which has resulted in scaled back investment, which guarantees higher prices as demand increases, have any idea about the impact on things like fertilizer and food availability. I mean, this is literally going to kill people in the developing world. And here's a forecast. I'll elaborate, elaborate on this at a later date, but higher food prices or worse, scarcity, along with higher energy prices, are going to be the catalyst for massive social and political unrest. Even the New York Times has started to notice, ran a headline story this week, in quotes, Europe fears that rising costs of climate action is stirring anger. Well, they're remembering the yellow vest movement. Well, wait till they add in soaring food costs. My point is that while I don't doubt the sincerity of the climate emergency crowd, They give me no reason to think they understand the consequences of demanding an end to fossil fuel investment without an alternative ready to meet the world's growing energy appetite. As I said, I'm glad you're with me. I got Mark Leibovit coming up. He's Timers Digest, Timer of the Year so many times, Gold Market Timer of the Year. And I got the rest of the show with Mike, with Ozzy, with Victor, Goofy's shocking stats. Hey, I'm glad you're with me. A story we've been following really since the outset of the pandemic, when, of course, there was so much uncertainty that uh, everybody sort of pulled in their horns. But the financial institutions basically said, we better allow for more loan loss provisions. We don't know what's going to happen. Well, as the pandemic proceeded, we saw the government uh, issuing record amounts of money to individuals and businesses, and those problems didn't develop. We didn't see it in the mortgage market. We didn't see it at least uh, to the majority of businesses in terms of bankruptcies because of credit problems. Well, Michael Levy's been chronicling for us uh, the amount that the banks have been bringing back into their balance sheet, putting it uh, into the earning side of things because they just didn't need that much money set aside. Well, as we told you about, I don't know, it was a couple of months ago, we said, wait for November. Because it looks like the restrictions on dividends are going to be lifted, and that's precisely what's happened. So I want to bring Mike in on that. And Mike, as I said six weeks ago, you told us look for this in October. Uh, sorry, in November, when the Office of uh, Security and Financial Institutions is going, the Superintendent of uh, Financial Institutions is going to say, "Okay, the gloves are off, the limits are off. You can go ahead and uh, distribute and raise dividends again."
2: And Mike, they're the last of the party, too. Now, the dividends were suspended in March 2020. pardon me, and uh, while banks had their hands tied, 92 TSX companies have raised dividends, and listen to this, with a median increase of 14%. While well, banks are now expecting to buy back shares and uh, start uh, uh, raising the quarterly dividends faster than usual to catch up to their normal payout ratios. Those payout ratios are generally 40 to 50%, of earnings, uh, an estimate at RBC estimates the banks will raise dividends by an average of 18% by the second fiscal quarter of 2022, and buy back just a modest 2% of their shares. But they've got $31.5 billion of extra capital, and that extra capital, honestly, so much of it belongs to shareholders.
1: Now, look, I want to share with you a thought that I know that was on your radar that I found kind of interesting. You know, there was a conference call this past week or so, uh, and here we have the uh, the head of the OSFI sitting there, sitting and saying, you know what? Go ahead and raise your dividends. But then he gave advice to the banks. This is the part that I wanted to get your the take on then. He said, do it with humility and
2: prudence. He wants the banks to act responsibly. Okay, well, if there are two words that are analogous, it's banks and responsibly, because that's the way banks operate in this country and pretty well all other Western nations. But there was a deeper meaning. And, Mike, this just really got to me. On a conference call with reporters, the superintendent urged top bankers and board members to proceed, as you said, humility and prudence. What does he mean uh, by that? Reminded them that quote, not everyone performed as well as as well or had as prosperous an experience through COVID nineteen as some of our largest financial institutions. End quote. Well, this wasn't even said exactly to to financial institutions. He used a press conference so he could have the greater Canadian audience on his side that these big, huge money-making machine banks, they made so much money, but be careful because don't rub our nose in it, those of us who haven't done as well, because boy, that's just not right. That's end his quote, end my comment. And I say, what the heck?
1: Yeah, that I found that bizarre uh, also. It's certainly not the job of the office of the superintendent of financial institutions to be giving advice in that way. But the other thing I always, as you know, I do this, Mike, but I always remind people that keep in mind, if you're a member of the Canada Pension Plan, you own the banks. Uh, you know, if you're part of any workplace pension plan, you're going to be owning the Canadian banks. And when they give those dividends, that means it's going into the pension funds, you know, and that's still a challenge with an aging population. So let's just put the context on that. I, I don't know, Mike, I just thought it was worth talking about because I, like you, I sort of had one of those, and I'm allowed to say it uh, here in the podcast, but I had one of those
2: WTF moments. But the other thing he's pointing at, which he didn't say, but is understood, is he's telling also that be careful with how you raise your executive compensation because that goes hand in hand with the dividends. But I don't know of any other corporations in Canada, no matter how well or how mediocre they did during COVID, that would get advice of how they should disperse those funds. And um, it, it it really does bother me, Mike, because, um, you know, they have, in fact, acted prudently. They kept so much money back in case of bad loans. They've got catch up to play. And as you say, the shareholders are not just the individual investors or corporate investors, but it's every darn pension plan in the country. Everybody who's got a mutual fund that they are either investing with now, if it's a general mutual fund or for retirement, that's all the banks. That's, all their, that's where the investments are. So okay, be prudent and hold back. I don't need his advice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, shareholders are there to hold their own companies accountable. We'll let them take that role. Mike, thanks for taking the time. You've got a, you put a smile on my face. This is one of those moments. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. The stat, 6.2%. That's the U- US annual rate of inflation in October. And when I heard it, I'll tell you, I thought it was a jaw dropper. But many analysts say, hey, that's not the whole story. And they could be right given U.S. producer prices are up way more, 8.6% compared to last October. And we know food and energy prices are rising a lot more than that, which is why governments remove energy and food, by the way, from core inflation numbers. Unfortunately, none of us can remove them from our daily lives. Hey, in our country, mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, the Canada Dairy Commission already announced that milk prices are going to increase by an average of 8.4%. And butter 12.4% starting early next year. And the reason? Increased costs for energy, feed, and fertilizer. I mean, it's a good example, by the way. I mean, you may not buy fertilizer directly, but the cost increase due to higher energy costs is passed on to you in so many areas, like the price, price you pay for milk and butter. What's interesting, though, is that while surveys consistently tell us that the rising cost of living will tops the list of the average person's concerns, the role that inflation plays in increasing our cost of living doesn't seem to register, nor does the role that government policy directly plays in increasing inflation. I mean, for example, if inflation stays at this rate, the average American family at that 6.2%, they make about 1200 bucks per, uh, per week. Well, they're going to end up paying $3,917 more for the same goods that they bought last year. Put another way, anyone who didn't receive a 6.2% raise this year, well, they're taking a pay cut. And keep in mind, as the price of goods rise, here's another one for you. So does the sales tax you pay. The government take also increases with those gasoline price increases. And while property taxes rise as the value of your house does due to the impact of loose monetary policy. I mean, it's, you know, you're looking food, you're looking gasoline taxes, you're looking property taxes. Even better for government, is that government borrowing money today from investors, they pay back in dollars whose buying power is reduced. For example, if you lent money to the government, say you bought a one-year Government of Canada bond, which today plays about seven-tenths of 1%, but inflation's, let's say, running at 5%, well, when the government pays you back a year later, the money buys 4.3% less. You're a loser. Good deal for government, bad deal for bondholders. So what's driving inflation? Well, we do have supply chain problems. They don't help. But we also have countries like Switzerland have the same supply chain problems, but little inflation. How about labor shortages? Again, not all countries are feeling the same upward pressures. No, I mean, the reason for inflation is, as Milton Friedman famously stated, is that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. So in the U.S., what happened? The money supply increased 35 percent since the beginning of the pandemic. In Canada, we got the numbers of September 2019 to September 2020, that year. Well, it increased 28%. You got so much money chasing goods and services. No wonder the price goes up. And I'll move on after one more thought. Who can least afford this? Well, the poor globally and domestically can least afford to pay the higher prices that are a direct result of government policy. And yet, you know what's interesting? I don't hear a a peep from people who tell me that they're poverty advocates. No, I didn't hear a word. You know, when I look at the stock market, I want to get great people on with me. Well, Mark Leighley has been Timers Digest, Timer of the Year several times, long-term Timer of the Year, Gold Market Timer of the Year. There's a long list. Mark is with VRTrader.com where he uh, created an array of uh, new and innovative ways of looking at the market and techniques for evaluating the market. So I'm pleased to have them with us now. Mark, first of all, I do appreciate you taking the time, but I want to throw the big question right at you. And that is, when you look at the market, you know, when we do these successive new highs, that kind of stuff, are you seeing anything in your indicators that suggest that the party's nearly over? Have you just, I, I mean, that's what you're going to go on. So have you seen anything to suggest that?
3: Well, we've seen some things, but the market still keeps fighting back. And whether it's the Fed in there supporting the stocks or it's, uh, you know, we're in a seasonally positive period now. Michael, we got Thanksgiving here in the U.S. coming up, the Santa Claus rally. Um, You know, I've had a bunch of little trading sell signals, but the darn market just won't break here. So, uh, you know, if we're going to revert back to the mean. There's a huge correction coming. But there's no clear sign that it started yet. Maybe it'll be after the first of the year. I'm just going to have to watch the indicators, you know.
1: And and that's a key point to make, though, for people. First of all, is the time frame. Uh, you know, so individuals have to sort out: are they long term, short term? Are they trading? And you advise on all of those things. But you do regular trading every day. Uh, people get your services. So that's one thing. And the second is you let the market tell you. I mean, we can all have opinions. And I I learned that the hard way a long, long time ago, that the market doesn't care what my opinion is. Believe me. (laughs) Yeah. So let me just uh, I I also want to bring this up because, uh, you know, we've got the World Outlook Conference coming again in the first week of February. And uh, we've now opened for tickets. But I got I got to throw something at you and, and give you some acknowledgement there. Uh, people should understand this when going back two full years and Mark said, Hey, you buy this stock called Tesla. It wasn't near as well known. He said, buy it on dips. Then it comes back last year in February. It says, look at Tesla, buy it when it dips. And obviously it's done spectacularly well. I mean, it's over doubled from there. Now that doesn't mean you hold on forever as a trader, as an investor, maybe, but as a trader, you don't, but I just want to give you the pat on the back for that because there's a great example. When I watched that stock, I found it very tough to get into it once it had had that first that second big move, you know, uh, like it's one thing to buy it at 90 and, and, and watch it go to 800. And then it drops back down and then it goes to 1000. And now it's hit as high as 1200 and, you know, backed off. I just find that difficult. And that's why you need indicators like you follow on VR trader.
3: Well, you know, I, ha- I have to admit too that I- I'm a little tainted by the fact that I had tremendous respect for Elon Musk. You know, the street seemed to always be criticizing him, and I always thought of him as the uh, Edison of our time. And uh, by virtue of all the companies he's created, look at SpaceX, for example, and uh, the Solar City, which emerged into uh, Tesla. So I just thought he was a remarkable guy. So you know, part of my analysis was, yes, the chart looked great as a growth company, but I really
1: admired what the man was doing. I have to be honest about that. I don't I don't think the party's over. I want to come also to something else you told us. And and it really was interesting because now I'm going back about three years at the World Outlook. And you said, Mike, you got to get a position in blockchain. Uh, and you actually started a newsletter, the blockchain newsletter. I mean, that was really early times. And I know in this year's uh, Outlook conference, you're going to talk a lot more about cryptos and, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of that whole sphere. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you're going to do that because it's such an important part. But has, you know, as that market has matured, I'm watching more and more acceptance of uh, Bitcoin, for example, of Ethereum also, and, and a few others. I mean, there's 4,000 cryptocurrencies. And as I say, you do your own uh, newsletter on that. Just give us a quick take on the whole crypto sphere right now. Well, I
3: think we're still early on in the process, Mike. You know, I think uh, looking back five years from now, we're going to wish that we owned a lot more. Is actually, according to my analysis, by the way, about 7,000 cryptos out there. Maybe I'm wrong in that uh, analysis. Um, you know, governments are supposedly trying to shut it down. It doesn't happen. I think Bitcoin, for example, is bigger than government. China tried to change the the, the playing field there, and then they changed their mind. Um a lot more coming. I think it's a flight
1: away from, uh, you know, the banking system and currency. Well, it's interesting. I, I've said all along that my biggest concern was government intervention. That as long as the cryptos became just a store of wealth, you know, it was an alternative. And we talked ages ago about maybe an alternative to gold. But one of those things that you're worried about paper currency, so you've moved into the cryptos. Where I got nervous is when it started to be a substitute for currency. And I I don't have an answer here, by the way. I'm just putting out my concern as at that point, I thought governments can't let somebody else come in. I mean, that's their biggest weapon is currency, Uh, you know, monetary policy. So that's what I find fascinating. And I'm with you. I mean, I watched China said, no, you're not going to do it because uh, you're not going to do it here because they have their own digital wand there that they want to introduce. So I think this is a fascinating story. But the more acceptance, I saw AMC movie theaters were going to accept it. You know, more and more of that. It is getting used as a currency. So that's a negative for me. But the positive, the more you see it used that way, the less likely government's going to be able to do something about it.
3: Right. I hate to say it's bigger than government, but there might be some truth to that, particularly if companies like you say, AMC, even uh, Tesla. uh, Elon was accepting Bitcoin for a while. So if huge players are involved in the commercial industries are involved, I don't know what government can really do at some point, but listen, we'll just take it a day at a time. I just think it's early. All oh, the young people are in it. The future is there. Uh, there's so much commerce being created uh, to store value for some people. I don't want to be naive about it. And of course, I'm going to follow it like you are, but I think there's a lot more coming.
1: Well, that's, that's the, the context of which I, I wanted to get to, which is, you know, we're still, relatively speaking, early days. And I loved your point saying, if we close our eyes and we're five years later, what will we think of today? Right. I think you're going to see uh, extremely high, much higher prices. And I
3: see a lot new, of, you know, these vehicles. Of course, there's some speculative stuff out there, which is a lot of fun. I don't know if your listeners or viewers are paying attention, but Shibu Inu uh, was a big runner. Uh, Shibu, it was that little dog that uh, Elon Musk uh, took under his wing, and that became the basis of Dogecoin, which he highlighted on his big Saturday Night Live interview last summer. I mean, I just see kids making a lot of money, a lot of the young people. My son, for example, this is a tangential story, bought a couple thousand dollars worth of Shibu, made $30,000, and and I'm not even in it personally. I'm in the Bitcoin, I'm in the... <laughs> So the kids have taken over this market. It's a young people, it's a young generation play, and
1: we can't fight that. That's the trend. And I love the point you're making, because I've been thinking about this for a a few years. It was one of the reasons that uh, I went so bullish on commodities. And we did, as you know, in 2020 in February, you know, a year and a half ago, we said the coming commodity boom. And it was not because I thought, you know, I really try and emphasize this for people. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. I watch the market and for the same reason, the impetus toward renewable energy, you know, whatever you think of, it doesn't matter what you think of it. It's coming. Electric vehicles are coming. You know, there's a lot more room to run. And I think Bitcoin, in the way you're discussing it, or the cryptos rather, right. you know, is uh, part of that. And I recognize that at my age, I am not a millennial. I'm not a 20 something. And as you say, that's where so much of the action is and has been in the markets too. Right, but there there's some ETFs being created now and funds
3: that that will diversify some of that risk. And we have to pay attention to them. In Canada, for example, there are a bunch. I have a whole list. We can I could send it to you. I'm sure you've seen it. Many that are based on the actual futures market and some that are based on physical delivery of the crypto itself. Bitcoin and Ethereum are the two examples. So there are ways you can diversify and there are some funds being created so uh listen even when cannabis started people laughed they didn't think it was going to go anywhere the skepticism is actually good i think yeah.
1: we're climbing a wall of worry as joe granville used to say right <laughs> well and 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 you're you're quite right because you also do the cannabis letter but that also came from you and uh, our friend jim dines uh were the early early adopters saying look uh, have a look at this space by the people who are going to supply it. If you want to be a little more conservative, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, that's also worked out well. And you do the cannabis newsletter, where are we at with cannabis right now? It looks terrific here. It looks like it finally hit a little bit of a bottom. Now,
3: maybe it's, we finally got all the tax law selling out of the way because it's been down for months, but, uh, there's some good earnings that came out today for a couple of the big U S based cannabis companies. But I'm looking at the chart of, uh, all the Canadian stocks, and they look like they made a bottom to me. Now, maybe just a rally into the first of the year. They call the January effect, you know, stocks that have been depressed into the fourth quarter bounce into the new year, but it could be a
1: big bottom here. So I'm long, all the ETFs for um, cannabis here. I think there's a play. Can you give me a couple of the ETFs? And again, people always have to discuss it with their personal advisors and see where it fits and everything, but just something to put on our radar. Well, uh,
3: in Canada, you got the Horizons uh, Fund, uh, the U.S. symbols HMLSF, HMLSF. Um, I think you have to look it up. I forgot what the symbol is. Uh, that's an NASDAQ symbol, ticker symbol MJ, which is uh, also another play. So those are just two good. Uh, there's a bunch of others. Uh, the third one I would give you would be MSOS, which is the U.S. ETFs. And the interesting part about that is the U.S. cannabis stocks have actually made money. <laughs> they've actually been profitable. So it's interesting that many of the Canadian names like Tilray and Canopy Growth have struggled. Many of the U.S. names uh, like Cure Leaf and uh, um, Green uh, Greenleaf, that's another one that came out, I believe, with the earnings report today, have done better. So MSOS would be the U.S. play, MJ
1: and HMLSF, the Canadian plays. And that's the most conservative way to do it. Uh, and uh, sorry, and I'm not holding you uh, to this, you, but uh, how is the, the legalization move in the states? I don't follow it as closely as, as maybe I could. Uh, you know, I own a couple of the ETFs you've mentioned there, but I don't follow that because that'll be the key. But I'm hearing some positive rumblings right now about legal further legalization in the states.
3: Now they've been rumbling for positives for a while. And doesn't yeah. seem to go any. Go anywhere, but like for example, when I mentioned these U.S. names, they were making money regardless because they're affected by the state laws where they operate, and uh, they've done well. So the federal change really hasn't affected them, and uh, they've done well. So I don't know if the federal change is going to help as much as people hope it's going to help. I think it's the stock market discounts this. You know, I think. You know, if you see it in the prices of the, of the, the stocks, then, you know, it means something. So I'm, I'm just following the action, the technical action. And what I want to say to you is U.S. names look better. But the Canadian names like MHMLSF and MJ are so depressed, there's a rally underway now. And let's see how far it goes
1: and whether the federal legalization plays in. We'll have to see. I think people can hear how much I love chatting with Mark because his research, of course, he's long time doing it. Uh, his own proprietary uh, measures, etc. at VR Trader. It began with VR Trader. Now, as I say, there's the cannabis newsletter. Uh, There's, of course, uh, the other one I wanted to just bring back quickly is the blockchain newsletter that you do, because I don't think there's much disagreement that blockchain has an incredible future. I mean, there may be debates about, as I say, uh, what government's attitude will be about cryptocurrencies, for example. We'll see how that plays out. But there isn't that same debate about the use of blockchain and the expansion of blockchain and and, uh, digital finance, et cetera. And, uh, Mark, uh, I just thought I'd tell you this so you don't pass out, but we talked to your office. And uh, just for the Money Talks uh, podcast listeners, we're offering a 50 percent discount. Actually, I know I'm going to depress you telling you this A 50% discount on the blockchain letter because I'm keen and I have been keen, as I say, on getting people familiar with this and the opportunities within that. So uh, I just let people know, just go to Mike's Money Talks We have the special discount 50% off on the blockchain letter. So Forgive me for that, Mark. Let me just move on.
3: I'm happy happy for the business. Thank you. (laughs) Uh,
1: Let me ask, I mean, and I am flipping around, and that's to say, because your research covers all of these bases. So uh, I don't want to run out of time before I've asked you about what you're thinking of gold. We've had a pretty good move in the last week or so. Uh, Anything significant yet, though? I mean, stocks and commodities and currencies trade in a range. Have we done anything that you suspect through your volume measures, et cetera, that this could be it, or do you still need more data? Uh, I'm bullish here. Um,
3: I actually wrote a few weeks ago there was about a 95% chance we did hit a bottom and we did. Seasonals are on our side. It was interesting the other day, the U.S. dollar rallied and gold rallied the same day, which I thought was very interesting. One of the rules that I followed for many years is don't tie markets together. Evaluate them individually, because you'll get caught thinking there has to be inverse relationships. But that was very bullish, I thought. So I think we're going higher, and we'll just have to see into the new year how far we take it, take it whether we go to new highs or we just retest. But I'm, I'm long all the ETFs for gold here, and uh, I think we're going to you know trade higher. So let's see how we – there's a seasonal tendency, I believe, for strength into February. So let's see how it acts into the new year. But I'm long here, and I think we're going a little
1: higher. Do you have – a? would I be looking now – at what the past high was, you know, going back, I can't even remember off the top of my head, like 18 2060,
3: I think, wasn't it 2060? Yeah, know it was?
1: so is, is that a number that I would look at before I'd think, oh, oh okay, a bigger move's underfoot? Like, the, you know, people keep talking about the move in gold, you know, because as they've watched Bitcoin, they've watched housing, that kind of stuff. Well, as long as you and I've been alive, they've been talking about the big, big move in
3: gold <laughs> <laughs> since the 70s, I remember I'm way back. Uh yeah, I guess if you take out 2060, that would be a big plus. Uh, I think there's a chance we could take that out uh, into early uh, next year. Yeah, and silver, maybe test the $30 level. So let's, uh, you know, again, I'm technical, Mike. I move quickly if things change, but you're asking me for uh, sort of a crystal ball forecast. The numbers are positive here, and
1: I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt. And the other thing, again, is for people, you listening here as an individual, you say, what's my time frame? Am I a trader on this? Am I investor on this? That kind of thing. Uh, and so, Mark, I'm going to skip around a little bit because the other one I can't. I don't want to run out of time before I ask you what you're looking at when you see oil prices, the way they've been behaving. And I'm talking maybe a little broader, not the fact that they go from 85 to 81 or something. Uh, I'm, I'm a little crazy, Michael, because I think uh, crude oil is going way the heck
3: higher than people are talking about. And uh, we've already heard people project possibly $100 a barrel. With the stupidity in government, the stupidity of the green movement. They've set the stage for shortages and the demand is there. And honestly, in the next two to five years, you want a long-term forecast. I could see two to three hundred dollars a barrel. This thing can go crazy because of the again, the uh, actions on the part of people don't understand that we really need it. We need the crude oil to produce the solar energy, to produce the electric vehicles to do all the things that they want and they won't have the supply. And if they don't change their attitude by cutting off pipelines and all this other nonsense, it's gonna go crazy. So the big high, what was it, $140 a barrel we saw back in 2007? Easily, I think that's gonna come out. If I had to give you a one or two year forecast, easily. That's where I'm at. I don't think, I'm not saying we can't little have a little correction or whatever, but I think the trend is up and it's being set, to, set the stage is being
1: set by Incorrect attitudes and policy. Well, just so you know, it's one of our themes here: is that you can't replace oil before you've got an alternative grid, and that's exactly what's happened. And uh, you know, I'm watching companies reinvest, uh, you know, buying back shares, for example, uh, increasing dividends, oil companies, but not increasing production. So and you're, you're afraid. afraid. Yeah, you're afraid, so, you're afraid of
3: uh, government. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think that is the scenario, and we'll see how it plays out again for individuals. But I'm proud of the fact we've made people aware of that on Money Talks, you know, when it wasn't really not popular. You know, I could get into the whole thing if you want to hear about unpopular, but it's that kind of thing. And to me, it's just, no, you've got increasing demand. You've got emerging markets, uh, population growth. I'm talking globally now. It's a global market. And so we know demand. You look at the International Energy Agency, which is, you know, recognized as, uh, you know, the experts. They're talking about increased demand into 2030, 35, 38 even, you know, and we haven't replaced the grid, you know, and uh, they don't have a plan to replace the grid either, by the way. Uh, So it's just interesting. Uh, That's why I wanted to know where you were at with that.
3: Well, speaking of the grid, I mean, all these electric vehicles are gonna be built between now and 2040. Where's the electricity gonna come from to power all these electric vehicles? I mean, nuclear is a possible source. That's why the uh, uranium stocks have been doing better. I think we're going to have to push back more
1: toward the nuclear to supply the needs because solar's not going to do it, you know. Yeah, well, you've just jumped into my next category, which is uranium. For that very reason, you know, and I've got a pat Peter Grandich on the back from uh, a year ago, February's uh, Outlook Conference, and Peter had one big recommendation, and that was re- uranium stocks. And he said it's the best longer-term, easiest longer-term bear a bull market because he he happens to think, and then people have to put their own interpretation, but he happens to think that nuclear is going to be the solution or a, a significant part of the solution. And boy, we got very few producers. You know, that's a very small marketplace. Right. And you know, from what I understand, it takes 10 or more years to launch a nuclear plant. So when the lights go
3: out and people realize they don't have the power, it's going to take them a decade to re- to create that
1: power. So they better start moving pretty quick. They're going to it be- is interesting, though, that France and a couple of other countries off the top of my head, Macron did a big about face. They do have nuclear power, of course, is significant in France, but it was the question of building new, and he came out about two weeks ago and said, "Make no mistake about it, we're building new uh, nuclear power." So that's just an interesting adjunct to that. Okay, now look, time is too short, but I want to come back and uh, come back to the overall uh, market, and, and just to reiterate, seasonality points higher, and you'll be keeping your eye. And this is one thing I want to be very clear to people. Mark is a technical. Uh, trader and investor, he's going to look at the indicators. That's what tells him what the market is going to do. So that's why people subscribe to its daily service, literally. Uh, And of course, uh, the broader services that are uh, uh, there with Mark at vrtrader.com. So I'm just saying as a blueprint, we're still looking for higher markets uh, into probably January. You can change your mind if the numbers come at you, you know, uh, more bullish stance when you look at uh, gold on the shorter term because seasonality pushes it in there. Uh, silver will be taken along for the ride. You'll look at the numbers to see if that's higher. And uh, you're still, as I say, longer t- longer term, you want to see how that crypto market plays out because you're positive on that.
3: Right. And I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin uh, gets to 100,000 uh, between now and the first quarter of uh, next year.
1: So I'm looking for higher prices there. Well, we'll be there and you'll be with us at the World Outlook Conference to actually talk about crypto and, uh, you know, give us your take on, uh, have an opportunity to be broader on that or more, uh, more detailed on that. Uh, that uh, that's at the World Outlook Conference. That's, uh, you know, first week of February. Mike'sMoneyTalks.ca is where you can get uh, all the information, but get on board with that. I am really looking forward to that, by the way, Mark,
4: and uh, your
1: track record at VR Trader and your team of identifying these markets early on. Uh, you know, is uh, has been nothing short of spectacular. You'll give me an update on Tesla then, too. I'll make you do that because I'm so fascinated.
3: (laughs) (laughs) If it dips enough, I'll be a buyer again. I'm I'm looking, I'm hoping it gets back to about 900 or so uh, share. I don't know if we'll get that
1: low. That would be one heck of a buy point if I can see it down there. A trading comment, of course. Fascinating stuff. Go to VRTrader.com. But for the blockchain deal, The blockchain newsletter, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, 50% off right now. As I say, a range of services. Mark's been timer, digest timer of the year, gold market timer of the year, long-term timer of the year. Fascinating stuff. Mark, as usual, you know how much we appreciate you finding time for us. Thank you for having me. Stay well, and uh, talk to you soon, Michael. Thank you. Have you noticed that virtually any idea that's outside the government narrative of the day is now called a conspiracy theory? Well, case in point, much like COVID, I think climate change will be the rationale for societal restrictions. That's got to be a conspiracy theory. Well, until you read somebody like University College London professor Mariana Mazzucato, who states in quotes, we may need climate lockdowns to halt climate change. That might mean governments limiting private vehicle use, banning consumption of red meat, et cetera. We must do capitalism differently to avoid that. Hmm, we must do cap- capitalism differently. Now, as a euphemism, of do your life differently. And if you're not willing to do it voluntarily, well, we're prepared to use other methods. Which brings me to the quote of the week. As Steve Watson of Summit News reports, this past week in an interview with MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell, Al Gore referred to technology created by so-called Climate Trace Coalition that monitors greenhouse gas emissions. In quotes, we get data consistently from 300 existing satellites, more than 11,000 ground-based, air-based, sea-based sensors, multiple Internet data streams, and using artificial intelligence. All that information is combined, visible light, infrared, and all the other information that is brought in, and we can now accurately determine where the greenhouse gas emissions are coming from. And next year, we'll have it down to the level of every single power plant, refinery, every large ship, every plane, every waste dump, and we'll have the identities of the people who are responsible for each of those greenhouse gas emission streams. Now, here's the part you might wanna pay close attention to, in quotes. If investors or governments or civil society activists want to hold them responsible, they will have the information upon which to base their actions and holding them responsible. End of quote. Does anyone, anybody want to bet that's not coming in our future? One of those popular subjects in Canada is rising housing prices. Not just in the last or twenty months. No, I'm talking if you go back several years. There's always. A politician standing up on a soapbox saying we've got to do something about rising house prices. What's kind of interesting about it is they never quite allude to the role that government plays, which is the most significant factor here. Now we're going to add other things like shortage of building materials because of supply problems. We've seen the inflation numbers and they continue to rise. There's a lot of factors in play, of course. But the government, uh, I want to bring in Ozzy Jurek right now. Sorry. Ozzy, it's just interesting that the government says we've got a problem with rising house prices and affordability, and they never talk about themselves, instead point the finger somewhere else.
4: Yeah, it's kind of interesting that, uh, look at the last election, some parties, we need 300,000 units. No, 500,000. We'll do a million units. We need it. We need it. And then they say, well, what is the problem? Well, the problem really isn't us. The problem is realtors. Oh, no, it's builders. Oh, no, developers. Uh, It's foreigners. Everybody else is to blame. But as you point out, the government who actually represents maybe 25 to 30% of the cost of a new building, uh, they're not to blame.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we never talk about how expensive it is to have uh, building delays, for example. And again, this is all three levels of government we're talking about, not just one level of government. And we continue to say, and I'm proud we have, Aussie, and we've said it well before it's even remotely popular, although I don't think it's popular now, all three levels of government have a role to play though, I mean, they're the ones that introduce, uh, you know, you've got taxation issues there, you've got uh, permit delays, that kind of stuff, uh, that again, the focus never seems to make it to that direction.
4: Well, that that is the absolute key. All three governments have to get together. I mean, the federal government says we need bidding, uh, blind bidding things, because we're bringing in this wonderful new buyer's bill of rights. Oh, the province also now came out last week and brings in a delay of uh, having to uh, uh, put my finger onto the paper kind of a thing. So they call it imposing a cooling off period onto the market. Mm -hmm. And so everybody has these wonderful ideas, but there are a lot of unintended consequences.
1: Well, let's talk about that, because we know that other provinces will be looking at this, just like uh, Ontario did when BC first introduced a foreign buyer's tax. So other provinces are going to be watching. So again, BC announced this thing to impose a cooling off period Can you just give us your take on that?
4: Well, the president of the Victoria real estate board, he says, we're not sure what problem they're trying to solve with this because our problems are in supply, municipal approval, all of the things we just discussed. And when you take a look at at what it is that they want to do is like in pre construction, if you buy a pre-sale condo, you have seven days to change your mind. You don't have to do anything. They would like to bring that on any transaction. So Mike, you sell your house to me. I have seven days to change my mind. So on the face of it, that sounds probably kind of good, but you do not know now whether you sold your house. I go around and make five more offers on five other houses, all with a seven day cooling off period. Now I've got six owners out of the market that haven't got a clue. So you now come. I come to my sixth day and Mike says, uh, so are you taking off the subjects? No, sorry. But the agent says, I have another buyer for you. But he needs also seven days. So, so in the meantime, where the hell are the owner's rights in this? You know, I mean, as an agent, I have a duty to serve you in the best way possible. And this, this thing makes it very, very difficult.
1: I, and I, I'll come back to what you originally said, is that this looks like uh, it's a solution in search of a problem. I mean, this isn't the thing I've been hearing about. You know, and we follow this on a daily basis. I'm sure, Ozzy, you're looking at an hourly basis. This is not the complaint I'm hearing from buyers. Oh, gee, I wish I hadn't got that house. That, again, that's just not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing about a lot of other things. But that's not the only thing we're going to, you know, the federal government started to talk about a ban on blind bidding. I don't know where we stand with that because, of course, Parliament hasn't even met yet. But remind us of what that means.
4: But it's also part of the B.C. Uh, ideas that they have. In in this buyer's bill of rights that they had in the platform, blind bidding is front, front and center. So what it would mean is right now, if I have my house for sale and there are five people want it, they all can write an offer and they they're bid blindly, not knowing what the other offers are. The idea is if everybody knew what the other person's offer are, house prices couldn't go up. And if that was the case, then I would have some sort of sympathy for it. But there are several countries in the world that have blind bidding or no blind bidding. Australia for instance has an auction system. All the buyers go into the living room of the the, the seller and then in a free-for-all they bid right there as an auction style thing. It couldn't be any more open because the guy says it's this much, I can go that much and so on. And guess what? Has Australia house prices come down? Is their market down? No Mike, it's in an all-time record price increase and volume.
1: Yeah, I would think also in that process, if you're in a strong market, you actually get the prices even higher because someone's worried uh, it's going to be higher a month from now or a year from now. They want to get in. And so the tendency, I would think, is to keep bidding up. Oh, you want you're going to pay seven hundred and twenty five thousand. I'll pay seven thirty. You know, I'll say seven fifty. But without that system in place, I've talked to tons of realtors who say de facto it is. Now, it's not blind. It's the fact that there's an auction going on. You know, people sort of say, oh, it it looks like it's going here. That's why you get so many properties in a hot or stronger market going above ask.
4: Yeah, no question about it. And you add to this, as we talked about last week, there's no product. Vendors sitting back and and they don't know. I mean, I've been sitting here for two years doing nothing and I made $500,000 so. Where's it going to go? Maybe is it going to keep on going like that? And what will I buy? There doesn't seem to be anything to buy. So the pressure is even more on no part of that pressure will be solved through blind bidding. And
1: you and you hear throughout the country, different real estate boards representing different locations saying we've never seen it like this. Where there's so little, you know, the listings are so low, so little product on the market.
4: Yeah, and that's the same in the United States. It's the same in Europe. You have, we have, uh, in my view, a world where we have incredible inflation out there. Yesterday, the U.S. came out with a 0.9% increase month over month. If that were to continue, that would be 11% inflation rate, 6% over 6% year over year, and they're talking about a transitory thing. We have massive inflation out there. People want to have a hard asset that they can rely on, and real estate is it. In addition to that, though, the U.S. just brought in a a deal where the If Freddie Mac allows you to have a $625,000 mortgage with 3.5% down payment. So think about it. They're making it even more easy to get into the market, more competition. And so all governments are the same.
1: And and that's where people, I guess our message or my message is uh, we have to focus on that. When you start when you start hearing governments talk about things that have a definite impact on supply, especially permit delays, especially the amount of money in terms of taxes and levies on any new build, which is really substantial, as Ozzie said, sometimes 25-30% of the cost of a new build, that's when we'll start making some progress. In the meantime, Ozzie, you and I will be there to chronicle it. OzBuzz.ca. OzBuzz.ca. Go to it. Lots of great stats there. Ozzy, thanks for taking the time.
4: Thanks, Mike. And uh, I just wanted to leave you with this thought that, you know, um, it, is, it is a sign of a good golfer if you're a little bit worse than the other people are. And how do you know that you're a good golfer is when you get invited. I can invite it all the time because I, I make people look good.
1: There you go, Ozzy Jurek. And a reminder, Victor Adair's coming up. I still got a goofy award. I'm glad you're with us. Hey, let's go live to the trading desk. I got Victor Adair with me. Vic, as I was alluding to earlier in the shocking stat, I mean, for me, inflation continues to be the big story. But that number at 6.2%, you know, that's what grabbed the market's attention, too.
0: Yeah, the number was printed at 530 in the morning here on the West Coast. And within, I'm going to say just over an hour, the gold price was up 40 bucks. Uh, And that's following, uh, following that CPI report. Gold is now up about $100 in the last seven days. That's 6%. Silver, of course, which is much more volatile than gold, is up $4 $4 in the last seven days. That's about an 18% jump. Uh, I mean, those are, that's one of the markets that reacted. Certainly we had the currency markets react, the interest rate market react. But I mean, gold really, which has almost been forgotten in a way, you know, really had its, its time to shine on the CPI number this week.
1: Well, it's also part, and I'm going to. Pat, uh, Money Talks on the back here, because I'm going back several weeks, I said, the way I'm watching markets move is you've got to take a position. And I recommend strongly taking, if you like that stuff, take your position, don't wait for the moves, because they're so abrupt, as you've just described. So take a position in, in silver and gold. Because once it starts moving in the way you've just described, then I don't think that's the end move at all. But I'm just saying, it's so hard to get in for most investors, not traders, but investors, Uh, You know, when you start seeing that kind of thing, you keep saying, as Jim Dines' wonderful charts show us, people always say, well, if it ever gets back down to that, I'll get in, you know, and then they don't. But uh, it's just an illustration of how fast things move once sentiment changes.
0: Well, I know I've been a bit obsessed with trading the stock market lately and maybe not paying as much attention to some other markets as I uh, otherwise would. But I mean, I looked at gold and I thought, can, can I buy it when it's up a hundred bucks? You know, I mean, no, it's kind of hard to buy because it could easily back up $50, you know, and then go again. And if it's down $50 from where I bought it, I'm going to be, uh, you know, fussing. Uh, the, the other market that really got my attention was how the short-term interest rate market reacted. It was like somebody slapped them on the side of the head. I mean, the, the, the it just jumped. The market had not been expecting this hot of a number, and the, clearly, as we go out the curve, as we go out into next year, the market is now pricing in at least two interest rate increases from the Fed in, in, in next year, whereas the Fed, just at their meeting last week, was taking the posture that they weren't going to be raising interest rates next year. You know, so it, it, the sentiment in the market is the Fed has got it wrong. You know they're behind the curve and that sort of thing, and I think that's percolating throughout the market. Like, if the Fed is wrong, what are the consequences, and how how long are they going to stay stubborn if they're wrong? Is maybe even more important.
1: Well, I think what's clear is the size of the move has surprised them. If you'd gone back three months or six months, they've been singing the transitory song for a long time. But it's just the size. So I think, and they don't have a strong record of predicting what inflation is. Maybe it's too difficult to do, but they certainly don't have a strong record. But the other thing I was saying is it starts impacting consumer sentiment, too.
0: Well, the consumers maybe are better at forecasting inflation than the Fed. And that's kind of embarrassing, I guess, if you're on the... F-O-M-C. But the University of Michigan uh, came out with their report on Friday of uh, consumer sentiment. And consumer sentiment is about as bad as it's been since we were in the, uh, the COVID crash, as I call it, in March of last year. Uh, consumers, uh, their number one worry is they're seeing prices going up, you know, and in, in, in all kinds of things that they buy. And, you know, we could be We could be, let's call it uh, academic almost here when we're talking about markets and all that. But put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's trying to make ends meet, maybe, you know, with two or three different jobs, and that sort of thing. And they go to the meat counter and they go, holy mackerel, look at the price of meat, how much it's gone up. So that's what's got consumers worried. And, of course, when the consumers are worried, the politicians down in Washington are, you know, really worried.
1: Well, and I think the other thing and I am give you a little different take here. We hear a lot about supply chain difficulties and they're absolutely true. But where does that come from? Well, a lot of it comes. Sure, it started in the pandemic and lockdowns, etc. But a lot of it comes back to the inflation story that the US Federal Reserve has increased the money supply 35% since the pandemic began. I mean, we're talking trillions of dollars have been flushed into the system. So, of course, you've got more demand. It's been pent up. They're out there and the supply can't keep pace. And so that's why it's just a fascinating story. And I want to finish with one last thing for you, Vic, is that the Federal Reserve, why I brought up the money supply, the Federal Reserve is setting a lot of that policy. So they're looking to maybe change who heads the Federal Reserve. And some Democrats want someone who's even looser with money supply.
0: Well, the, the current chairman, Powell, his term is up. I believe it is the end of January. Uh, it's unusual that he hasn't been reappointed or told he's, you know, not going to be there. Although Biden has said that by Thanksgiving, he will make up his mind and, and let us know. But it's not just the chair. There are, I think, four positions now going to be open on the, uh, in the Federal Reserve as we go into next year. And this may be an opportunity for some of the Democrats, at least looking at it this way, for the Democrats to reshape the composition, you know, the tone, uh, the, the, the sensitivity, whatnot uh, of the Federal Reserve in a way that, uh, President Trump reshaped the Supreme Court in a more conservative way than it might have been otherwise. And of course, as we go into uh, the possibility of all kinds of money printing out in the future, maybe the progressive wing of the Democrats would love to see a very compliant Federal Reserve. I mean, it's been one of those kind of weeks, Mike, when I'm shaking my head so much, I'm just dizzy. (laughs)
1: Well, we're going to keep an eye on that story because, again, the big story is how much money has been created, both monetary policy, fiscal policy pushed into the system. We're seeing it in asset price increases. Uh, We're seeing it now in consumer price increases in a lot of areas. I talked about food earlier today. We've talked about oil. Uh, So this is a big, big story for people's personal pocketbooks. And we'll be there to chronicle it. And I'll invite people to go to victoradare.ca victoradair.ca, A-D-A-I-R.ca. And Victor, I was chatting, uh, I'm looking forward to the World Outlook Conference because it's setting up again with so many of these major issues to be discussed. So I invite people to join Victor, join myself at the World Outlook Conference. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, I'm thinking I should have enlisted the help of a psychologist. Actually, because this is actually more than a Goofy. I'm referring to when white people pretend to have First Nations heritage. Now, don't confuse that with... Rachel Dolezal in the U.S., who famously pretended to be Black. No, I'm talking the sort of Senator Elizabeth Warren style. For decades, she claimed of being Cherokee heritage. She identified herself as Native American in the Association of American Law Schools directory of law professors. Not just once, by the way, but every year from 1986 to 1995. And after becoming a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, well, Ms. Warren demanded the university change her faculty-listed ethnicity from white to Native American. Only problem was she had no Cherokee heritage. Now I'm not suggesting for a moment, by the way, this is just an American psychosis. As the National Post, Tristan Hopper notes, in June, Algonquin rights activist Robert Lovelace was called out for long claiming Cherokee heritage himself that couldn't be documented. Then there's the case of best-selling author Joseph Boyden, whose novels feature Indigenous Canadian characters. The author claimed that he had Métis, Micmac, Ojibwe, uh, Nipmuc heritage. Inconveniently though the Aboriginal People's Television Network couldn't find any supporting evidence for the claim. Uh, Tristan also notes by the way in the National Post the case of Kingston, Ontario artist Morris Blanchard who long claimed to be Ojibwe medicine man who claimed to be a victim of government programs in the 1950s and 60s. Those were referred to as the 60s scoop that took thousands of First Nations children away from their homes, placed them in foster homes, and eventually adopted out to white families in Canada and the U.S. Along the way, by the way, that Mr. Blanchard collected numerous government grants. I mean, the only problem was, in August, members of his own family stepped forward to say they were just regular white people. Which brings me to this week's Goofy, the sad case of high-profile University of Saskatchewan Indigenous professor, Carrie Barassa who also, until recently put on unpaid leave, served as scientific director of the Institute of Indigenous Peoples Health. She first identified as Métis, but went on to claim Anisanabe and Tlingit heritage. She went into significant detail, by the way, about the difficult childhood she faced as being First Nations, from which, by the way, those kind of claims she benefited professionally, and I have no doubt socially, at least until CBC reporter Jeff Liao Expose the false narrative. I mean, just as an example, reports the take on University of Saskatchewan associate professor Winona Wheeler, who states, genealogical records show Barassa is not Indigenous at all, but rather of entirely European descent. The CBC story also quotes Janet Smiley. She's Metis, University of Toronto family medicine professor, who wrote a chapter on Indigenous parenting in a 2017 book that was edited by Barassa. She states, She's recently learned the truth about Ms. Barassa's identity after conducting her own research. In quotes, it makes you feel a bit sick to have an imposter who's speaking on behalf of Métis and Indigenous people to the country about literally what it means to be Métis. That's very disturbing and upsetting and harmful. You know, that last part should be emphasized. It's not just a bizarre story that I would need a professional to help me understand the deeper motivations. No, it's harmful harmful to Indigenous communities and their representatives. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. But a reminder, the World Outlook Conference, first week of February. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can click on. There's an early bird special. But I I tell you, what a year it's going to be. I love our track record. You're going back. I was just reviewing uh, Peter Grandich last year who's telling us that we looked at the uranium market. It was the bullish thing uh, attitude he's had in 37 years. It's going to be incredible. Well, you look what happened to Cameco as an example. One of his recommendations up 100%. And the World Outlook Conference small cap portfolio, which we've done every year with Keystone Financial, well, it's up 114% as I talk to you right now. So that's the bottom line. But I want to remind you to get your tickets. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca as you can. Uh, to get the tickets, but you could also go to Money Talks Tweet every day. You can also go to uh, the website, but you can go to Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. I hope you do all of that. I can keep you up to date, but a reminder, World Outlook Conference coming up. I hope you have a terrific weekend.
0: Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.